0: If you're able to capture an outsized positive PL on your long volatility trade, then you can use that money to buy cheap assets. Distressed assets, yeah. That have not been priced appropriately in order to, to be able to balance and, and make some excess returns.
1: Hello, and welcome to Resolve's Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10 part series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick and Rodrigo Gordillo explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, we provide a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. We hope that you enjoy the series as much as we enjoyed putting it together. Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. All opinions expressed by the principals are their own and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. This episode is brought to you by Resolve
2: Asset Management Inc. separately managed accounts available for US and Canadian investors. While diversification is often discussed, it is important that it actually be delivered through the suite of Resolve Global Mandates offered at varying risk levels. We aim to strike the balance between global diversification, appropriate risk balance, and directional alpha. Our portfolios are designed to safeguard and profit across many economic regimes, including periods of negative growth shocks or unexpected rising inflation. Periods in which, in our view, the traditional 60/40 portfolios may fail to deliver adequate returns for investors. Resolve to improve your portfolio. Click on the link in the description to reach out to a representative and assess which resolve mandate is right for you.
1: All right, episode nine. Here we are. We have designed a portfolio that is fundamentally hedged against the big sustainable risks that portfolios face. When we're talking about timeframes that are measured in many decades, primarily growth shocks and inflation shocks in both directions. And that does hedge against the risks that we face most of the time. But one of the risks that we can't hedge against in that framework is the risk that liquidity evaporates. Liquidity is the oxygen that supports every market price. And sometimes liquidity evaporates for Reasons we probably won't get into it is useful to also incorporate strategies that are fundamentally designed to do well when liquidity evaporates. And you might think that incorporating some of the alt style premium sleeves and maybe alpha sleeves that we discussed in earlier sessions would fully or mostly alleviate this risk. But the reality is that the plumbing of liquidity risk is such that these strategies are also vulnerable at those times. It's not sufficient to just diversify in that way. We need to think about strategies that are designed to trigger exclusively during these liquidity crises. 2020 is a good example of how that plays out.
0: When it comes to risk parity, we talked about the dimensions that is designed to cover, right? You have periods of accelerated growth and and negative growth shocks that it does well in because it has a balanced exposure to gold and treasuries that tend to do well. And certainly in 2020 did do well. So one would think, okay, well, this framework should cover all of these scenarios. If we zone in on 2020, risk parity actually did do a fantastic job in the beginning part. We saw the growth shock happen. You saw money move away from risky assets towards risk-off assets, which in these periods are tre- sovereign bonds, not just treasuries, but German bonds, UK gilts, and the like.
1: Well, hold on. Let's walk through the economic mechanics that are playing out there too, because we've had a growth shock. And also an inflation shock, like a negative growth shock and a negative inflation shock. So the markets are now worried about deflation and therefore treasury prices are rising. They are concerned about or anticipating central bank intervention and therefore the potential for currency debasement. So you've got gold also rallying. The mechanics are playing out as you'd expect based on the fundamental drivers in the market at that time.
0: And so the question is, well, it doesn't risk parity cover all these angles, including a liquidity shock. And the reality is that it doesn't. There's a breaking point by which when you are discovering price accurately is when liquidity is abundant. That's the price discovery mechanism. There is a point where there is less players willing to play. People want to sell. The margin clerks are coming out and doing margin calls across the board. When it comes to this particular point in time, it's not what you want to sell. It's what you can sell. And if the things that you can sell are going up, generally the things that are going up have a bit more liquidity, gold, treasuries, and the like, that's where you draw from. So there is a breaking point that we see every single time there's been a bit of a credit crisis, been a liquidity crisis, and you see it happen immediately. There is a breaking point, even in risk parity, where diversification no longer helps, where gold and treasuries go down at the same time that equities and commodities do.
2: Liquidity crisis is a systemic issue. All players and participants are forced to reduce exposure at the same time, whether they could be targeting vol in a number of methods, they could be using VAR or CVAR on their own books in order to target acceptable risks. You have an overall contraction of liquidity that creates problems for all asset classes. Right. And
0: this is intuitive from a long-only portfolio like risk parity. One would think, well, I have these market neutral portfolios that completely take out that beta. Clearly, a lot of market-neutral strategies still suffer in periods of market illiquidity. So Adam, why don't you walk us through how that mechanism might work?
1: It's just that there's a global collateral call. So all these market-neutral strategies, the vast majority of them run with leverage because while the edges are reasonably strong, the underlying risk of taking long, equivalent longs and shorts in equities or in similar markets, typically the risk is relatively small. And the return is commensurately small. So you just lever up that small return to get enough juice to make it attractive to cover fees, et cetera. So there's leverage embedded in those. And as the risk in the system accelerates, they discover that they've got too much risk on. The book's too volatile. Their broker dealers are short collateral. They're reaching out to their underlying investors and saying, we need you to raise cash and deliver us excess collateral, which means that these funds need to sell down their exposure and you sell down your exposure using the instruments that you can sell. So typically, they're the most liquid, highest quality stocks. So it's this strange phenomenon where during the peak of liquidity crises, the strongest assets get sold the most, and you completely eliminate the process of price discovery as this liquidation event proceeds. So nothing's safe.
0: And there's also that spread that widens, and you've got the market makers taking in all of that spread. You're getting bad prices on your longs, you're getting bad prices on your short, and that delta is adding to your negative p So all these things are due to this mechanism, and that includes any sort of maybe even directional strategies like trend especially something as quickly as this how liquidity can dry up so quickly if you're caught on the wrong side you will also have this tail event in something that may be designed to provide some ballast in periods like these understanding that there's this gap like risk parity as i mentioned was doing really well while equities were really getting hurt, it was really three, maybe three, four days of pain. And then everything, liquidity came back in and there was price discovery once again. Diversification came back into play and the machine was working again. But it's that gap that could be, depending on how much volatility targeting you want to do on your risk parity portfolio, it could be fairly wide.
1: I would add too that markets came unhinged from sort of March 19th to March 23rd or 24th of 2020. That stopped when the Fed stepped in and was the liquidity provider of last resort. Over the duration of the experience for most investors, the Fed has stepped in in those situations and provided sufficient liquidity so that investors didn't need to have that type of protection. They didn't need it because the Fed provided it. The question is, in the future, will the Fed always be there? Will they be there the way they've been there in the recent past? And if not, do you have something else, some other type of protection that can deliver against those collateral calls in those liquidity cascades?
0: And the gap that is being filled by this is long volatility. And even if the Fed does come in, that period of dislocation actually provides an opportunity to make some profit. If you're able to capture an outsized positive PL on your long volatility trade, then you can use that money to buy cheap assets distressed assets yeah. that have not been priced appropriately in order to to be able to balance and, and make some excess returns
2: i think it's important to point out one other thing and that is that if you are hedging a portfolio and you're only in one domain of risk let's say an asset like gold or like stocks on their own are experiencing part of this systemic issue of liquidity their drawdown is going to be much larger And thus, any tail hedge protection strategy that you employ with a single asset class in a single regime requires more capital. One thing that's especially important is that when you think thoughtfully about preparation, the tails of the prepared portfolio are smaller than a super concentrated portfolio. And so, the amount of capital that you have to dedicate to a tail hedge protection strategy in the context of a very well prepared portfolio is smaller because the tails are smaller.
0: When people think about tail protection, they're thinking about protecting their 100% equity portfolio because that's what people feel they need to allocate to these days to capture some excess returns. If you're there and you know that equities can suffer a 40 to 85% drawdown depending on the equity market and the point in history that you're looking at, then yeah, you need to allocate a large portion into this tail protection strategy, which tends to Tail protection has a bleed to it when it's not tail protecting.
1: That's critical to talk about because I think everyone's sort of, by now, who hasn't already thought that this through is wondering, well, why wouldn't we just cold tail protection as much as we want all the time? And the answer is because it's an insurance policy and an insurance costs money. You've got to pay regular premiums to carry this insurance. This insurance pays off when there's a major liquidity event. So you want to carry the least amount of insurance necessary in order to hedge your core risks. The point here is maximizing diversity and balance. You need to carry a minimal amount of insurance, but you still need to carry insurance, right? And this insurance is especially valuable in the context of this diversified portfolio. And I think that that's a critical thing to understand. You were going to describe a metaphor that-
2: Like any insurance, it's always best to buy it when you're not in the middle of the earthquake buy your insurances prior to or hold them in a disaster items like that were wimbledon they had been paying two million dollars a year for insurance and kept their insurance paid off poor examples are i think calpers had a program that they unwound just before
0: was it in january 2020 or something like yeah. that it's literally sadly. What it before.
2: oh my god sadly
0: it's tough to do right it is really tough to hold those losing parts of your portfolio and that's one of the reasons why you don't see it especially as a separate line item
2: yeah There's definitely a behavioral headwind to those, and I think Chris Cole of Artemis has a wonderful analogy on that, translating that into basketball, and he talks about Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman is the lowest scoring NBA player in the Hall of Fame by a long shot. He can't score within five feet and uh, scored an average of 11 points a game. So how is he in the Hall of Fame? He's in the Hall of Fame because he's a six standard deviation rebounder. Now, think of that in the context of your basketball team. So any team he was on, he made better. Very much like your tail hedge protection pays off and you have money to put to these asset classes that are distressed. Broadman won, I think, a couple of championships with the Pistons and three with the Bulls. And he was an integral part of their success because whilst he was on the court, he reduced the average scoring of the team. So when things were going really well and everyone was scoring, you could have scored more points per game had you not had Rodman on the court. Having said that, having a six standard deviation rebounder comes in handy when you're not scoring and you get second and third chances to make a score at the basket. And that makes you competitive in those games where they're tighter. And yeah, oh, by the way, you don't win the games you were already going to win by as much. So if your objective is to win more games and win championships and have a better record and get in the playoffs, you don't really need to win the games you were going to win anyway by a lot more. You need to be very competitive in those games where they're on the margin between victory and loss. And so think about those five players on the basketball court as five different asset classes. And if you have them all in the sort of inflationary growth or the growth paradigm with disinflationary, inflationary growth, i.e., you have a heavy equity portfolio, you're going to be putting up great scores, a lot of great years. And when the tough year comes around, you're going to have a really, really tough year. And we know that. Or decade. Or decade. Right, right. Well, decades at a time. True. What you want is to have a diverse team or a diverse group of asset classes where one of those asset classes actually gives you the opportunity to have a couple other chance at scoring
0: you know what's interesting was it the last dance the documentary that came out like what was interesting is that people can get behind risk parity because it goes up you can get behind a solid uh, factor premium portfolio because it tends to do well most years you can do the same thing for a solid long short systematic alpha but this idea of having a player that just pisses everybody off consistently, but you know you need them, is the equivalent of what we saw in The Last Dance. Nobody liked, or very few people liked. Or if they liked him, they liked if him for the If you played right with them,
2: if he was on your team, if he was on your team, you, you liked him. If he wasn't on you your team, you had to team, manage you like
0: your expectations him. of him. I think it's a perfect parallel to it is having this in your portfolio. And we lived it when we all got together. I had in my clients' portfolios a line item that actually went to zero every year and we'd have to re-up and got clients on board, they didn't last long. They just couldn't deal with the pain. So one of the interesting things is this is a real characteristic and you might wanna consider co-mingling this with something else.
2: Chris Cole says that Dennis Rodman is literally the long vol trade for your portfolio. Like he's hard to have on your team, but he comes in real handy.
0: There's different implementations of this tail protection strategy. And certainly there's different The way it's been talked about often is you have to have a big bleed that's worth it in order to have that 100% equity position hedged. When you have a diversified portfolio and you have the opportunity to maybe even profit in a directional type of strategy or maybe the liquidity shock isn't that much, you might be able to benefit from a smaller allocation, not as much bleed. You can stick to it longer, but it'll still be there for you as an opportunistic trade.
1: The key is to have an ensemble of these strategies, I think. You want to have some trend, you want to have some straight up put strategies with different strikes. You want to have some other maybe systematic strategies that where, for example, you're using relationships between the shape and slope of the volatility term structure to inform your equity positioning, that kind of stuff. Like this is a team sport, even within the liquidity cascade protection or like tail protection area, if you can incorporate all of those, that full ensemble within a broader portfolio context, you're not having to constantly look at what looks like a weak player most of the time and suffer the behavioral pain from that, all the better.
0: I'll add one last thought that I have. And what's interesting about a risk parity portfolio is that it does hedge against growth and inflation shocks, but not liquidity shocks, both on the upside and the downside. Problem is that we like upside liquidity. Do we deserve it in a, what's supposed to be a non-predictive balanced portfolio? maybe we don't deserve it so much. So if we can think about the bleed as taking away some of that excess liquidity and upward moving where liquidity floats all boats, you're not
2: necessarily supposed to feel that bad about it.
0: And then when negative liquidity shocks happen, you have that stop gap to be there for you.
2: It is the sea anchor. It, It prevents the portfolio from vacillating quite as much. And in doing so, again, we talk about arithmetic versus geometric returns. Basically, there's a vol drag to a portfolio. The lower the vol drag, the more consistent the returns, the higher the ability for the portfolio to create an ongoing income. Most portfolios, long-lived assets, are there usually to create, in many circumstances, are there to create some income. So if income is a relevant factor for a portfolio, then one should seriously consider this type of strategy as a complement.
0: I mean, how many people withdraw their funds on a quarterly basis upon retirement? What did they wake up to this quarter or quarter of 2020, first quarter of 2020?
2: Pensions, endowments, the same. Endowments have to create some 3 to 5%, something real oftentimes. So there's a lot of these large, long-life portfolios have an income requirement.
1: It's important to realize or to emphasize that when we talk about the need for income in a portfolio, that doesn't mean that you need to emphasize yield-producing assets.
2: Distributions might be better.
1: Yeah, which can be just the sale of assets, raising cash through the sale of a small amount of your portfolio to fund distributions, right?
2: Both institutional and retail investors fall in the trap of assuming that just because you're getting a yield, that yield is somehow immune to the two dynamics that we've talked about of growth and inflation, when in fact it's not. LDI based on sort of your corporate Debt ladder. We've talked in the previous episode about what corporate debt is and how it is a an out of the money put that you're short in a situation where you have equity risk, credit risk is equity risk, and that's going to translate into your credit book. And so it's not just that you can find a yield and say I'm safe. That's not at all what we're talking about. We're talking about the consistency of the portfolio's total return and its ability to meet the obligations that it has in the long term over decades that are both friendly to equity and bond portfolios and decades that are unfriendly, like the 70s, for example.
0: And we'll post uh, an article that we wrote a few years back on sequence of return risk. All of this is about creating consistency in your equity line and liquidity in your equity line so that when you're putting big chunks of money in, you're not getting into trouble. And when you're putting taking big chunks of money out, you're also not getting in trouble. So we have both a savings and a retirement addition to that article that I think would be useful in understanding the role that diversification and tail protection play in that consistency. So that's it for tail protection. In the next episode, we're going to try to put it all together.
1: Thank you for listening to our masterclass. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. If you're really enjoying the series and learned something new and believe that our series would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, and hit the share button to share the knowledge with friends. Thanks again, and see you next time.